This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be considered as investment advice. There's no one that's too low on uh, the ground. Uh, you, you have to meet with those and build relationships. Welcome to the Biotech Pulse, a Forbian podcast. Forbian is a leading life sciences venture capital firm founded in the Netherlands, helping companies bridge research and development through our team's expertise in drug development and company building. For over 15 years, we've invested in over 100 companies, backing exciting therapies that we believe have the potential to impact the future of medicine. The Biotech Pulse is a forum where we speak about all things biotech with diverse stakeholders in the life sciences industry. Welcome to the second episode of the Forbian podcast, The Biotech Pulse. My name is Nana Lundborg, and I'm a general partner at Forbian. At Forbian, I had a leading role in sourcing and evaluating new investment opportunities, focusing on late-stage biopharma investments. I'm delighted to introduce today's guest, Francois Abramanel, CEO of Inosaga Pharma. Hi, Nana. Thanks for having me, and thanks for the invitation. I'm really happy to be here. Wonderful. So Invisago is a clinical-stage biopharma company dedicated to developing therapies for patients suffering from metabolic and fibrotic disease. And Francois, you're with me here today to discuss how biotechs can ensure they're set up for future M&A success. And I can't think of a better guest to discuss this topic with me because in August this year, Nova Nordisk agreed to acquire Invisago for more than $1 billion. Invisago is developing a pipeline of small molecule drugs that block the CP1 receptor. And at the time of the acquisition, Invisago was enrolling a phase two study in diabetic kidney disease, or DKD, and had also produced phase 1b data in obesity. Before we get into the discussion, let me start by saying congratulations again to you, Francois, and the whole of the Invisagra team. What a tremendous achievement. Thank you, Nana. It's really a testament of the hard work of the entire team, for sure. And, you know, uh, it's great to have built this pipeline and seen this deal uh, done. Yeah, wonderful. And I think this is uh, really be really going to be a, an exciting outcome with potential to really have a lot of positive impact for, for the lives of patients with cardiometabolic disease. Great. So Francois, perhaps you can start by telling us a bit more about the journey you've taken at Invisago and, and maybe take a, a step back and tell us about why you chose to pursue development of CB1 receptor blockers. No, absolutely. I think there's a little bit of uh, being naive and, uh, you know, 15 years into drug development, I, I feel I had the right experience to take something from the lab and bring it into the clinic. And I felt taking a CB1 blocker that was meant to not permeate the blood-brain barrier was, you know, pretty straightforward story. Um, I was a little naive because that, that was a big, big step for pharma and even investors to get behind. So uh, I think that's that's how I got to it, the experience uh, doing it and and thinking this, this made a lot of sense and there was a li- uh, high potential but I wasn't aware of the, the, the dark cloud of the CB1 blockers that was really there. So maybe uh, take a step back and, and just uh, spend a couple of words on talking a little bit about Ramonaband, which was obviously the first CB1 blocker that was developed and, and what were some of the both advantages and, and problems with that drug that led it to be withdrawn from the market. Yeah, the CB1 blockers had a great uh, start initially in the early 2000s with Sanofi, leading a, a, a group of large pharma companies uh, with Remonabant. Remonabant was the first approved uh, CB1 blocker. It was specifically designed to uh, target the brain receptors. It was very prolific in, in you know, at that time to control glycemic, uh, con- well, provide glycemic control, but also weight loss, 
and it was developed as a weight management drug. However, because it was built to uh, target the brain receptors, it also brought with it some psychiatric adverse events. It was worsening anxiety, increasing depression, sometimes even producing severe depression in patients. And that really wasn't the right benefit-risk ratio for a patient who was trying to lose weight. Uh, but there was a lot of clinical data, a lot of uh, preclinical data that was produced through the years from 2000 to 2008, when eventually Ramonaban was pulled from the market by Sanofi because of those psychiatric events. So we were building on a lot of data on the target. And, and there was reasons to believe that the peripheral CB1 receptors, the ones outside the brain, were really at play here. And that was uh, where we were going with Inversago. Great. So I think in, in many ways, uh, an exciting uh, an exciting adventure, because on the one hand, you already had a lot of proof that this mechanism would be efficacious, but on the other hand, also some, some risks involved in terms of uh, perhaps dispelling some of those dark clouds. Um, so, so with that um, development um, background in mind, um, to what extent was, was looking for an agreement with pharma um, through M&A, was that part of the objectives as you were starting in Basago? Well, initially, we were trying to raise uh, funds to develop uh, our asset in obesity, believe it or not. In the 2015-2017 uh, period, uh, we were really focusing on obesity. And, and because it was a clinically validated target, right? We had seen it work. Uh, however, investors, pharma, no one was really interested. I would say pharma might have been. They were more like, hmm, this is special. If you ever get to the clinic, please call us, right? But the investors were, were really more like, there's no market in OBCD, there's nothing to do here. So we had to refocus everything, uh, a business plan around a rare disease, namely Prader-Willi syndrome was really where we, we landed to make our proof of concept and really build on the safety of our new compounds. Um, and that's how we really got started in 2018. But you know, the alignment was not just yet, we needed to to show the pharma companies that clinically this was safer than the previous generation. Yeah, it's astonishing to think in in 2023 that uh, only a few years ago people didn't didn't really believe that obesity was an interesting indication, and uh, today it's front page news. So, Francois, you and I obviously first met a few years ago in the context of the latest round of investments by Forbion Growth into Invisago, but you'd already had a long history with Forbion at that point with our colleagues from Bobby and Ventures 4 um, already joining in, in 2020. And I think you had long conversations with them even before that. I think it'd be interesting to hear um, how you think uh, VCs can can help support, if, if at all, um, for biotechs as they're readying themselves for, for future M&A. No, absolutely. The uh, Series B brought for Beyond Ventures and then we met for the, uh, you know, the clinical stage, the proof of concept stage. And every step of the way, when uh, you know VCs come in, I was looking for investors who had that experience, that understanding of what we were trying to do. And and you know, you brought in uh, people like Carlo Inserti, uh, you know, as a chairman for for the company, who had the experience of large pharma, could see and breathe in that environment, and really. Uh, bring me that that view of uh, what it is uh, on the other side and how we can build on that. The other thing is the networking. Uh, investors work together. Uh, you guys know of each other, and and you know there is some strength and and not weaknesses, but differences between different funds. 
so that you're, you know, the VCs are bringing that aspect too. Who could be helpful here um, in this story? Because every story is different. So it's that, you know, um, network and experience that I think uh, later stage investors uh, should and you have met, at, you know, in this story. So, Francois, I think uh, one of the exciting areas about um, this area of biology with, with CB1 receptor signaling and endocannabinoid signaling in general is that it really has potential applications across a number of different disease areas and indication areas. And, and you know, we started out um, this, this podcast by referencing both metabolic and fibrotic disease. You've also spoken about how the Willy disease and, and the rare disease space. So how on earth, as a small biotech, do you go about figuring out what is the right direction to go in and, and which indication to select for your first major clinical trial. Again, you know, picking up uh, information from uh, the people you speak to, including investors who are not maybe ready to invest, but also some who won't, uh, pharma uh, the same. And, and then, you know, putting all the pieces together and finding the right indication or indications for a proof of concept. You had an idea, we had an idea that this drug could work in obesity. The risk-benefit ratio wasn't just uh, yet uh, demonstrated. So we had to find the right uh, indications for, you know, uh, a proof of concept that people would buy into. And so we consult with firms. We, uh, you know, there are some great consulting firms out there that can help you put, put just data together and, and kick, kick ideas around. And then you have those discussions with your investors and future investors that you'd like to see uh, come in. And it's uh, sitting back at the office with the team and discussing those and coming together and building confidence that you know some of these indications are better suited uh, for the task than others. So it's not easy. Uh, in the end, as we mentioned, we were developing uh, in diabetic kidney disease. I was the most reluctant person probably around uh, to go there initially, but we, I saw the data, I, 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 I was part of those discussions and eventually I was convinced you have to build the trust around, you know, your, your, your team and also yourself and the data. And eventually I even told some investors who asked change indication and then we'll join. And I was like, I can't, you know, this is the best indication at this time for yeah. this. I think that's a good point that, you know, in some ways you have to solicit the advice, but, but you also have to, to back the judgment of, of you and the team. Um, did, and were you able to have access to other, other advisors around the company, potentially people who had been part of the original Ramona band story or other areas of, of specialties? No, absolutely. We were from the start with people who had worked on the previous generations, but also within our board of directors, right? I, I mentioned Carlo and Serti are. Our chairman was at Sanofi uh, Genzyme uh, at, the, at that time, so he had seen everything from up close. It's important to gather those people very close to you, and we did that in a way to not uh, see all the negative, but really see what was positive. How can we build on what was observed and, and what's really happened back in those years? Because there's a lot of myth about what happened, and you need to not ignore them, and you should not be like, this is just a myth. You should just build the story on it just to address it front uh, and, uh, and center. Yeah, but I think it's, uh, it's, it's, actually, uh, it's actually in some ways it's a challenging area of pharmacology. And uh, I think, you know, we had a lot of those discussions um, at the time of, uh, of Forbian Growth's investment as well. 
because in some ways it was such a prolific area of, uh, of clinical research at around the time of, of Ramonaband. And a lot of other large pharma companies had their own CB1 uh, programs as well, but they were all discontinued once the side effect profile became clear. So on the one hand, you had all this you know, exciting clinical data, but on the other hand, you had this potentially challenging side effect profile. And I think the concern in the, in the back of mind of, of, of investors and, and probably also potential farmers, you know, how many patients do you have to study before you can dispel this myth or before you can you know, show that your molecule is different? Was that a concern you, you encountered? Absolutely. Showing, you know, you want to prove that you don't have something is, diff- is difficult, right? And, and there is no small molecule that is entirely restricted from the brain. So when we say peripherally acting, we mean that it's very low brain penetration. But what is low enough? And how yeah. much is too much? Uh, all these questions were extremely difficult to address in a quanti- quantitative way. So we had to think about, again, proof of concept in preclinical models known to be sensitive to that brain penetration and demonstrate their safety margin was the first step. And then eventually you get to the clinic and that's where you really need to be. So you need to bring people along with you and explain how you see it. Because we believed it. And I yeah. thought, we believe it. It's not because we're trying to trick anyone. So yeah. you have to present it clearly. Yeah, now that makes a lot of sense. So switching gears a little, I think uh, one of the things um, that uh, that in that you did very well, obviously at Invisago, was actually having a close dialogue with potential pharma partners um, throughout the development path. Perhaps share with us a little bit um, how you built those relationships and and how that informed some of the choices you took um, for Invisago by having some of that feedback from potential future partners. It's a mix of a, a few things, right? I think. Uh, with with Novo and other a couple of other large pharma, it's being at the biotech showcase meetings, being at the JP Morgan healthcare conference surroundings, and asking for those meetings. Asking, and obviously, my first meeting was not with the head of BD, right? So yeah, get those folks who are there to track and find, just like you do at Nana, the next yeah. innovation that's going to be you know game changing in in maybe five years. And so that's the first part. Be out there, be present, ask for those meetings. You don't know the person, it's okay. He's going to be your champion or she's going to be your champion and build relationships there and ask to be able to present to a larger group. And if years go by and you're invited to the JPM, you know, healthcare conference, not the, the conference itself, but to the, the pharma, and then you get a, you know, higher level people. Yeah. And- impression and build that relationship. So it's step by step. And eventually funds like Forbion can also introduce you to some of them and bankers become interested in the story and they're they're thinking long-term uh, relationship with you. They'll they'll make introductions to other companies you may not have uh, uh you know connections there. So it's step by step. Uh at least it was for me. Great. I think uh, it sounds like the, the short version of the answer is, is hard work and persistence pays off. <laughs> <laughs> I guess so. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. You know, there's there's a you know, it's no secret that Amgen Ventures had, had invested in the Series C, uh, and you know that that the champion there, Aaron Wallen, just to name him, used to work at Novo, and he was the one first person I met with Chuck Gray. I uh, remember very well, and eventually uh, Aaron moved to Amgen. <laughs> And so that created that bridge, right? So it's all these yeah. people who are out there uh, and work uh, in this area. 
there's no one that's too low uh, on the ground. Uh, you you have to meet with those and build relationships. Yeah, no, that's very true. It's a it's a smaller world, and uh, and uh, you you come across the same people in in different jobs across the year, right? And and just going back a little bit to think about, um, you know, once you've uh, successfully raised the money and you've got some VC investors uh, around the table with you and, uh, and and discussions in the board about how do we best position this company, I'd like to talk for a moment about um, the choice of of indications because I think you know when you and I were were closing the Series C financing of Invesago. Obviously, we were not primarily focused on obesity, but rather a different indication. And and what was that? And and what were some of the reasons for that choice? No, it's true. Uh, you know, going back a little bit to Ramanabad, remember what the regulatory authorities like the FDA told Sanofi is this is not the right risk benefit ratio. So, you know, if you're coming in with a weight management drug with a new target and it's doubling this risk of severe depression, that's not going to work. So as a biotech, we wanted to position ourselves in an indication where we could show our proof of concept, but demonstrate safety as well. And without going in front of us or, or you know, too far ahead, doing large uh, phase two trials was going to allow us to prove the safety. But let's say that there was some remaining liability. It wasn't doubling the risk of severe depression, but it might be, you know, uh, something left. We don't believe there is. But let's say there is, as a biotech, we wanted to ensure this would not kill this class again, because this class has a lot of potential. Imagine keeping somebody off dialysis if he has kidney problems, for example. Uh, but, you know, there's a, a little risk of increasing depression. I think that risk benefit ratio makes sense. And so that's really how we worked through the uh, different indications that were in front of us. And the, the target provides us with a lot of options. And that was really nice because, uh, again, a lot of clinical data, a lot of preclinical data presented in front of us, a lot produced by us, convinced us that we could go in diabetic kidney disease. In this, this, this indication, we have people who are overweight and obese, diabetic, dyslipidemic, and at the same time, they have, you know, failing kidney uh, function. And we thought this is a perfect indication for us to really cover a breadth of biomarkers and get out of a phase two with strong, uh, you know, indication of where to go next. Obesity has always been in the background, as you know, but, you know, not as a first um, indication for a biotech. Yeah, no, that's, uh, that makes a lot of sense. And so um, around the time that we, um, you know, were starting that phase two study in diabetic kidney disease, um, this was obviously at the time when, when GLP-1s was making a huge impression on on our industry and and uh, and on society. I think uh, more broadly, really making an impression of of suddenly putting obesity and, and weight loss medicines back into the limelight. And and then I think there was at least a discussion within the board about hmm, maybe we should also be looking at obesity. And how how do you think that that could um, uh, play into sort of preparing the company or readying the company for a potential acquisition? Definitely. I, I think, uh, again, obesity is in the background, right? Uh, that's where we think we should land eventually if, uh, if we can demonstrate that safety. So after phase one, which was very successful, and we had seen some pharmacodynamic around appetite uh, in this phase one. So we decided uh, as a board to look at you know, obesity in the metabolic syndrome population. So people with large waist circumference, dyslipidemia, glucose intolerance. And this phase 1B was a very short uh, four-week trial. Uh, 
Uh, it was meant to assess a single dose of INV202 or at lead asset in this population versus placebo. And the goal was to see the magnitude, understand a little bit better the pharmacokinetic in an obese population because sometimes that could affect it. But in the background, we really wanted to see, you know, what kind of, of profile we got. And so that study was a, a turning point because when we saw the is the effect size on weight, on lipids, on glycemic control, on you know all those biomarkers, we were, uh, you know, very impressed, and I think pharma was equally impressed. I agree. I think it's 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 one of those uh, great experiences when you see a data set and you really don't have to do any kind of a very complicated analysis. It's uh, it's very obvious just looking at the data that that something is happening and something quite dramatic is happening with this drug. And I guess to some extent it was maybe a a positive surprise because actually the effect size was significantly greater than with Ramonaban. And also, you know, before we'd done that experiment, I guess no one knew to what extent the effects would be mediated by the central CB1 receptors versus the peripheral CB1 receptors. And I guess there's still so a lot of different issues that express CB1 receptors, even peripherally, that I think we're still, uh, you know, are far from completely understanding the biology of what are the most important um, areas to actually drive this, uh, uh, this, this pharmacology. I mean, you're right. The magnitude, uh, of the peripheral action, uh, showed us that actually Ramanabad from Sanofi was, you know, providing about 6% weight loss over a full year versus placebo. And that's really the maximum tolerable dose, uh, for yeah. because it was brain penetrating. If you avoid that brain penetration, and you bring a little bit of a, a twist on biology, which we shared uh, along the way, you, you can actually tap into the CB1 blockers in the periphery much more profoundly. And so we were at about 4%, 3.8% in four weeks instead of six in, in 52 weeks. So we're, we're in a different uh, zone and we're, we're happy to have initiated a new phase two in obesity just to make sure that we capture that on the, in the long term. Yeah. Yeah, no, that's um, uh, it's been uh, an exciting, an exciting journey, definitely. So I guess um, you know, the the opportunity to to enter into this agreement, um, into this acquisition with Novo Nordisk probably came a bit earlier than than had been planned. I think it's it's typical that companies expect once you have positive phase two data in a larger study that that's a that's a, a typical point where where an asset can be acquired, but. So how did you know that this was the right moment for Invisago and, and what um, what what advice would you give to other biotechs as they're thinking about positioning themselves for the, the right time to seek a partnership? No, definitely about a year early, as you know, <laughs> Nana, in my mind. But, you know, that phase 1B was a nice proof of concept. So when you have that data, obviously you have to go around your, your, your I was going to say your partner, your eventual, your eventual partners, and you know, present it to them. And so I think it's important that you have a relationship with those potential strategic partners early on. And we did. We did uh, have discussions every once or twice a year with Novo, but with all the other uh, names that you're thinking about. And so when when you get this data, you're able to say, look, that phase one B, here's the here are the results. What do you think? You know, uh, we're excited. And so you build that, and it just it happens a little bit naturally. The strategic fit with Novo is a little bit above everything else, right? Uh, because of the the way obesity came up, uh, patent uh, lifetimes, and and the opportunity to 
uh, be a leader in a new class because we're not in cretins. We're not like CBU, uh, GLP-1 agonists or GLP-1 uh, or other dual agonists and, and so on. So that makes a big difference. So I thought it offered uh, Novo a great opportunity. They saw it, they agreed, and they're the right partner, right? They know the market. They can do the, the phase 2B, phase 3 trials much faster than we can. So eventually, it just made sense to uh, sit down and, and, and discuss. Yeah, no, I agree. I think it, it, it definitely seems to be a great partnership. And, uh, and hopefully, I think this partnership will really accelerate the, the timeline to make this, uh, make this product available to patients. So I've often heard people in our industry say that, you know, biotech companies are, are bored and not sold, I guess, meaning that basically the only way to, to effectively prepare for M&A is, is to plan for the future as an independent company. Um, because it's, it's hard to control these things, right? So do you think this was true for Invisaco and, and what steps did you, did you take to do this? No, absolutely. The Series C was pivotal. Uh, you know, we, we came to in January in San Francisco with, uh, you know, a Series C closed, a lot of money to support a couple of phase twos that were going to bring us to a proof of concept. And we were preparing the company for a NASDAQ listing IPO. I know the market wasn't really good, but when you look at uh, cardiometabolic companies, it was okay. So all the gears were in place to uh, get there to the public market, but also keeping in mind that you have a uh, phase two proof of concept coming up uh, in 24. So really shaping up the company to go far, uh, to have a plan to do the phase two Bs and phase three, and even file an NDA before partnering. But, you know, again, keeping those relationships because eventually when it makes sense and you have the right per the, the right group, you, you can move. So we were bought. Uh, we never were for sale. That's for sure. Great. Finally, Francois, is is there any sort of one particular piece of advice that you received, or, or maybe that you wish you'd received that the, that you think you'd want to share with other biotech leaders as they're thinking about developing uh, partnership strategies? No, I think you know. As I said at the start. Uh, it's okay to be a little naive on, on, on what you're trying to do, but you should always listen to the feedback. Uh, we, we took two years to kind of understand that feedback. Um, you know, it doesn't pay to be stubborn. So when the investor community tells you something, I think it's just listening. And it's not, it's not that they're right and you're wrong. It's more about shaping up uh, your plans to satisfy some of the, the, the feel that they have. Because uh, investors uh, like Forbion are underground, seeing everything, talking to those pharma, so they, they can give you great advice. Don't listen to all of them, but take some notes <laughs> and adapt. Yeah, yeah. No, I think it's uh, it's funny to to think back on the uh, on the Invisago journey in some ways because you sort of started out with obesity and then had to uh, you know take take a little bit of a detour to think more about uh, more rare diseases and more fibrotic indications. But actually, I think the Clearly, the the main the major driver of the strategic interest has clearly been actually back to where we started at, at obesity. So, uh, thank you so much, Francois. It's been really great talking to you as always, and uh, I was really interested to hear your thoughts on uh, on how to decide on both clinical development strategy, financing strategy, and and how to keep your options open and uh, and obviously uh, uh, position yourself for a fantastic outcome with this uh, with this M and A. So, I hope that this will give some valuable insights for for some of the others that might be listening and thinking about M and A for a future path for their business. And uh, congratulations again on the agreement with Nova, and uh, wish you all the best for the future. Thank you, Nana. Thank you for the invitation, and always fun to uh, have those discussions. I hope you enjoyed listening to the second episode of the Biotech Pulse. 
I'm Nana Lundborg, General Partner at Vorbion, and we've been discussing mergers and acquisitions, how to set yourself up for success, with my guest, Francois Ravenel, the CEO of Invisago, a company recently acquired by Nova Nordisk for over $1 billion. Remember, you can find all episodes wherever you get your podcast and on the Forbian website. Our next episode will be coming to you in January 2024. Goodbye and thank you. Thanks for listening to the Biotech Pulse, a Forbian podcast. To subscribe and share or to find out more about the Biotech Pulse, visit our website, forbian.com.